We are going to be in Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. So, Genesis chapter 4, we're going to be looking at a, uh, a narrative that no doubt you've heard before, or at least heard about before, even if you haven't heard the whole narrative, but we'll be looking at that today. We'll be looking at uh, the story of Cain and Abel, um, the, the, the ones who would be born of Adam and Eve, who would then go, and we would, we're actually going to see the very first murder and in all of Scripture, and really in all of history, really, if you think about it that way. And so we're going to be looking at that in Genesis chapter 4. Before we enter into Genesis chapter 4, let's just remind uh, each other of what we've been learning so far in the book of Genesis, uh, and there's a lot that we've unpacked, right? We've been in this for several months, and we've gone to other places in the Bible to see how Genesis relates all the way through all the passages of Scripture, and ultimately relates directly to Jesus and his uh, and his sacrifice and his love for us. And we're going to continue to do that today. But as we remember what we've been seeing so far in Genesis, uh, we've seen that God has created a good universe. God has created a good universe and that it has been, but that it has been tainted by the rebellion of Adam and Eve. Uh, I'm summing up a whole lot uh, of content in just one little phrase, but really we've seen God create a good world. God created, as a good God created a good world. And then Adam and Eve, we've seen, chose to listen to the serpent and chose to go their own way and rebel against God, to sin, transgress, and break the covenant, break the relationship that God wanted with them. And so we've seen that happen so far. And then we also saw at the fall, when Adam and Eve did choose to rebel, uh, we see all the the curses that were laid down to the serpent and to creation, uh, and we see that there is going to be conflict. And that conflict is promised to happen between the serpent's offspring and Eve's offspring. We've been looking at that for several weeks. And it's already been mentioned many times. We're going to see that come out clearly today as we look at Cain and Abel, an offspring of the serpent versus an offspring of the woman. And we're going to see that today. So we're going to continue to see that theme coming through in Genesis. And we've already looked at it in some ways. And so I won't spend a whole lot of time reminding us of that. Just remember, this is what we've seen will happen. That there would be Enmity, that there would be conflict between the seed of Eve and the seed of the serpent. The seed of the serpent would strike the seed of Eve's heel, but the offspring of Eve would crush the serpent's head. And we've talked about that for several weeks now. And we're going to see that at play today. So indeed, today we see this conflict. We see this conflict begin. The very first time we really see this happen, conflict begins between the seeds as we see history's first recorded murder. We see history's first recorded murder of one person murdering another, specifically an innocent person. And we will see that today as we look at Cain and Abel. Now, I first of all want to start, before we jump in, we're going to read this passage, and then I'm just going to quickly give you the bullet points of what we see happening in this narrative as we look at Genesis chapter 4, 1 through 16. But again, as we come to some of these passages that many of us have heard many times, or, you know, this is one of those stories you're told in Sunday school. In nursery, you're four years old, you're learning about Cain and Abel and beyond. Uh, right, All the way up through, we know this story, but I want us to make sure that as we read God's word today, as we consider this, as we consider Cain and Abel, and how not only do we see what happens to them, but also then see how that applies and, uh, and comes into our lives, that we would not just step back and say, oh yeah, I've heard this all before. Let us truly listen to the word of God and see what it is that we can learn today from what he tells us in Genesis chapter 4. So let's read together Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. Genesis 4, 1 through 16. Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, 
I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain uh, brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry. His face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Now the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Indeed, this is a sad story as we see how humans are continuing to be ruled in many ways by death and by sin, as we've been talking about. And so let's just look at some bullet points as we look through the story and and draw our attention to a few different things. There's so many things we could talk about, uh, but for the sake of time, we won't talk about all of them. But surely you can find any number of information, any amounts of information anywhere you may look. But let's just start by starting at the beginning of the story. We see that Cain is born of Eve and then Abel is born after. That seems pretty simple. But also let's just take a, a minute to think about what that meant to Eve. As we think now that Cain is born first and then Abel, we see that when Cain is born, Eve is, is happy to see that a man has come from her. Remember the promise that we've already seen that the seed of the woman would crush the seed of the serpent. And at this point, Eve sees Cain and thinks, I have had the offspring that's been foretold. And then Abel again is born after that. And, and so it's this, it starts off. This is a, this story starts so promising and so hopeful. Cain and Abel are born the, the seeds of the woman that would crush the head of the, the serpent. So the question becomes, would Cain be the seed that would crush the serpent? Or even would Abel be that person? Spoiler alert, we've already read this. Neither of them is going to end up being necessarily the one that will carry on to towards crushing the serpent. And yet, we are going to see some truth as how Abel then points us to the one who will, which is Jesus. But, before we get ahead of ourselves, let's continue on in the story. So after they're born, Cain and Abel... Uh, they both take on uh, a, a livelihood. You know, Cain, he's, he's tilling the ground. He's a farmer, and, and Abel seems to be a shepherd. And so uh, we see that they've started to make a life for themselves. And we see then that Cain and Abel both give a sacrifice to God. But we see that God does not accept Cain and his sacrifice. Now, we're not told up to this point 
if God prescribed the sacrifice, if they're just choosing to sacrifice. But in any way, when we talk about sacrifice throughout Scripture, it's all about worship. Cain and Abel really come to a place where they are going to express worship to God. And so when they come to give their sacrifices, we're told that Abel gives the very best, and and we're told that Cain gives uh, his offering as well from the fruit of the ground. And so we see that they both bring part of their livelihood. They are going to worship God with their livelihood. And what we see in this passage is that God accepts Abel and his offering, but does not accept Cain and his offering. Now, in just a moment, we're going to talk to why this might be. But before we even get ahead, we're just looking at the facts here. But what we understand and what we can't miss here is this doesn't just say that the gifts weren't good enough. Actually, this says that the the person, Cain the person, wasn't good enough with what he brought. It says he had no regard for Cain and his sacrifice, but he did have regard for Abel and his sacrifice. This is not just about the items that they brought. This is about something more. And we're going to look at that later as we continue on. So with this happening, now Cain gets angry with God. Cain gets angry with God as we continue to read this. He's upset because God has not... uh, valued him, has not come to him and, and regarded his, him and his offering. And so he's upset and he gets angry. His face fell. And then God talks to him. The Lord talks to Cain. And he, he says, listen, I know you're angry at me. So Cain gets angry at God, but God offers him mercy. He says, Cain, it's not too late. I know I didn't accept this sacrifice, but you still have a chance to make things right. And God offers mercy and grace and love, even in the time where Cain's sacrifice and what he brought and the fact that he came to sacrifice in an illegitimate way, which we'll talk about later. But God looks and says, there is still hope. Turn away. I'm going to give you a second chance. Get it right and everything will be good. But if you don't, if you don't listen and if you don't receive my mercy Sin is crouching at the door and it will devour you. We've talked about that several times from this pulpit. So God offers him mercy even though Cain is angry. Now, this is interesting because at this point, Cain's anger is not necessarily directed at Abel yet. God warns Cain and pleads with him to change his heart at this point. This is a, this is a confrontation between Cain and God, not Cain and Abel. Now, out of Cain's Wrong relationship with God when he doesn't listen. This is what we see next happen in the story. And that is that Cain doesn't take God's offer. And instead he turns and murders Abel. Abel, who is completely innocent. So Cain's anger boils over. Remember, he's angry with God. He's angry that he was not, he was not accepted by God. That his worship wasn't accepted by God. And so he is so angry, it boils over. He speaks to his brother, says, come out to the field and murders his brother who had, didn't, had done nothing wrong. Abel is completely innocent and yet Cain's anger because he would not put it under submission in faith to God, then he comes out and he kills his own brother. Indeed, this, as we think about sin and death have now entered the world, we see both things happening at once, sin and physical death happening at the same time, sin and murder are happening here. Then we see as the story continues after uh, Cain kills uh, Abel, we see uh, that God, again, comes to Cain to talk to him, and uh, and he says, where is your brother? Now, obviously, God knows where Abel is at this point, but he's asking Cain, he's giving Cain another opportunity to at least admit what he had done, to admit his sin, 
to confess it, but he doesn't. Instead, what we see happen is Cain lies to God. He lies to God in an attempt to hide his sin. So when God comes and asks, where's your brother? He says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? The issue here isn't whether he should be his keeper, or the keeper of his brother or not. The issue is, is he's lying. Bold-faced lie right here. I don't know where he is. He knew, he knew right well, very well, where he was. He was dead. And God comes and says, where is he? And he says, I don't know. I'm not his keeper. Am I my brother's keeper? Now, we see here that he is compiling upon the sin, that he's already committed murder. Now he's added lying to God himself. And the purpose is to try to hide his sin. Now, if you'll remember, his parents, Adam and Eve, not too long ago, sinned and chose to hide. Now we see Cain choosing to hide, maybe not physically, but he's trying to hide it through deceit. And so we see the spiral is continuing down. Sin and death is spiraling away. But God obviously knows what has happened. He calls out Cain and and what he's done, that he had killed his brother and his blood is crying out to him from the ground. And we see that God knows what Cain has done and punishes him with exile. Uh, He exiles Cain from the presence of his family, from the presence of himself. For the first time, actually, we see something happen here. Don't miss this. What it says is, in verse 11, now you are cursed from the ground. So far, we've seen the serpent cursed, the ground has been cursed, uh, there's been curses that have been given, but now this is the first time we see a specific curse given to a human being. He's being cursed as a result of his sin and his hiding of his sin, and he is sent away in exile. This would be away from his family, everything he knows. It would be away from his livelihood. He would no longer be able to keep the ground the way he once was. Everything was going to change for him because of his choice to murder and lie. And we see this happening And not only is he being removed from his family and from the ground itself, but he is being removed from the very presence of God. In this passage, we see very clearly many times he is going to become, he becomes a wanderer. Now, it's kind of interesting as we think of exile and wander. And I don't want to get too far ahead here, but you, if you know the whole Old Testament, you see that Israel goes through a very similar thing, right? They, they continue, they don't worship God the way they should and they end up being exiled. Uh, we see that happen as well. And so in this exile, and then we see that there's wandering. Think about all the time Israel is wandering around. This seems to always come alongside of sin. Sin brings wandering. Sin brings death, but sin brings wandering and sin brings uh, all of these things to be. He would be removed from God's presence. He would not be anywhere what he was used to. And so we see he becomes a wanderer. We see that he is going to spend the rest of his days apart from everything he knows. However, and this is important, as God gives the punishment of the exile, he then also shows mercy to Cain even in his sin. See, God could have just wiped Cain out right here. He could have said, well, your brother's blood is in the ground. Now yours is going to be in the ground and just... Took care of it right then. That's, God could have done that. That's not what he chooses to do. He chooses to show mercy even in the midst of this great sin. Even though punishment and consequence will come as a result of his sin, God still gives mercy. Not only does he not kill him, but then Cain is, af- is afraid. He says, I can't do this because if I go out, someone will kill me when they come across me. Now, who might this be that would kill him? Well, we know that right now, it's all family. 
But the idea would be is that, yes, even in Scripture, we'll see that there's an understanding that there is a right for a family member to avenge the death of a murder of a family member. In any case, Cain is up, he's, he's, he's scared. He thinks if he is out from the presence of God, then what, where is his protection? And God then marks him so that no one would be able to kill him or harm him in his wandering. Now, many people have tried to answer, what is this mark? Nobody has a clue. Uh, something that marked him that people would notice, marks him to say that people would not kill him, that he would be protected by God even though he wouldn't be in his presence at that, at that time. And so this is mercy. This is mercy. Not only is mercy seen in the fact that he doesn't kill Cain, not only is mercy seen that he makes it, gives him a mark so that no one else will kill Cain, but also there is mercy seen in the fact that Cain is able to go and settle into the land of Nod, which, by the way, just means wandering. Again, this idea of wandering, the land of Nod, he's going to be wandering, his sin has caused him to wander, but he will be able to settle in a city and have a family, which we'll talk about next week. There is still grace even in the midst, there is still mercy even in the midst of sin. Now, indeed, what we're going to see is we're going to continue to see the seed of a serpent is going to continue on and on and on. But even in that, not only was Cain not killed, but Cain was allowed to continue his legacy, if you will. So there's mercy even in the midst of punishment. That is an important thing for us to understand about God. God hates sin. God punishes sin. God also is a God of mercy. That's going to be important for us to remember as we think about the New Testament when we get there. So those are, that's what happened, right? So we read the story. This is the what happened stuff. Now, surely I've missed things in there that we could have talked about. But I want us now to turn our attention to what we're going to see in the New Testament as God shows us how this narrative, how Cain and Abel, the very first murder, is not just about some facts that we can learn about somebody murdering someone else, but this indeed points us to a greater reality, a greater truth that we need to understand as Christians. And so let's look at the why. The why of what happened will then inform us of the why we should live our lives in a certain way today. And so that's where we're going to go from here. We're going to spend some considerable amount of time in many other scriptures. Some, a few in the Old Testament, mostly in the New. And we're going to see how this story, how Cain and Abel, and what happens here, the why it happened, and then how it will apply to us. So let's just start by saying this. We see throughout scripture that God bases his acceptance of sacrifices or worship on the righteousness of the worshiper, not on the necessary, not, not necessarily on the type of gift given. Actually, throughout the Old Testament, you'll see some people do give gifts from the ground, uh, and grain gifts, and things like that, what they can afford. But throughout Scripture, and this is what we need to understand, why did God not accept Cain and his offering, but did accept Abel and his offering. What was it about Abel's worship that was different than Cain's worship? And the New Testament is going to make that very clear for us. But the whole Bible makes it very clear that God does not accept worship based on just mere acts of sacrifice, but God accepts worship based on the righteousness and the heart of the worshiper. That's going to be key as we go forward from here. So I want to draw your attention to start with with 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, and what we're going to notice here is we're told in this passage why God received Abel and his 
act of worship, but did not receive Cain. Why? Well, 1 John 3, 11 and 12 tells us very clearly. 1 John 3, 11 and 12 says this, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. So here we see very clearly why was Abel received and his offering and not Cain? Well, because Abel in some way was righteous, whereas Cain was wicked and evil. So let's take a minute just to talk about those two things. I'm going to talk about evil and I'm going to talk about righteousness so that we understand what we're talking about. This isn't just about this isn't just about well Abel was a good boy and Cain was a bad boy. Okay, that's not that's not that's oversimplifying it. Let's look at what scripture says about what evil is and what righteousness is. It's going to be pretty simple and and quick. But let's first of all I want to talk about evil. I want to look at Hebrews chapter 3 verses 12 and 13. Hebrews 3 12 and 13. And I think in here, and we'll also see this throughout Scripture, and, you'll, and I'll take a minute to explain this, that we have a definition of what evil looks like. Hebrews three twelve through 13 says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin." Here we see the deceitfulness of sin is linked back to an evil, unbelieving heart. And the key word here I want to focus on is unbelieving. Evil is an unbelieving heart. Now that is super simplified. Listen, there are a lot of evil acts. There are a lot of evil things in this world. And what we see people do, evil things, and that is true. But at the heart of all of it, evil and sin comes from one thing, and that is unbelief. It comes from a lack of faith. And let me just explain how this might work. It's pretty simple. God says, this is how you should do life. And when we choose to say, no, I'm going to do something else, we don't believe that God has our best interests at heart. We don't believe that God knows what he's talking about. We don't believe that God really is the loving, good God that he says he is. Instead, we believe that he's holding back. We believe that we need something more. And so we don't believe God. We have unbelief. We have a lack of faith. And so therefore, we turn and walk our own way because we believe something wrongly. So the unbelief in God leads to a wrong belief, which leads to sin. I've heard, you know, a lot of times we talk about the core of sin is idolatry, and that's true as well. But idolatry doesn't happen until we don't believe in the true God. We have to reject the true God to worship another God. And so the idea is, as we see throughout Scripture, and many times this is mentioned, that when we're talking about the The unregenerate heart, it's one that is unbelieving, one that does not have faith, one that is not truly trusted in God himself. And I believe this is seen in Hebrews chapter 3 and 12 and 13. I believe this is seen through scripture. Go back to Adam and Eve. They're in the garden and they sin. And they eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in that moment, what were they doing? They were believing the serpent, not believing God. And it's never changed. The sin throughout Old Testament, the sin throughout the New Testament, the sin in our lives today, if you just take a step back and think, why do I sin the way I sin? Why do other people sin the way they sin? It all comes back down to a core of unbelief. We don't believe God is who he says he is, and we don't believe that God does what he says he does, and so therefore we trust in ourselves, and we trust in our own thoughts instead of his. And so we don't believe God, and instead we walk in sin. Cain did this. 
in some way, shape, or form. And we're not told all the specifics. But obviously, when he came before God to give his offering, to give his worship, there was a lack of belief in God at that moment. Maybe it is because he didn't give the very best of his crops. Some people have said that might be the reason. Maybe he did. Maybe he held back because he didn't trust God. That's a good possibility, but maybe it's something else. But what we do know is that God, that Cain was not trusting God at that moment. He was evil. And by the way, that evil will be seen in his actions as he murders his own brother as we continue the story. So that's evil, but let's talk about righteousness. Because remember, we said Abel was righteous before God and Cain was evil. So how is it that Abel was righteous? Well, in his heart, we see that he was righteous, but why is that? Well, I want to draw your attention to Romans, th- uh, Romans chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. Romans 4, 4 and 5. And this is what we read. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. But and to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So here we go. We're getting around to now, how is Abel righteous? Well, it's not just about doing good things, and Cain was doing bad things. No, we see that faith... Now, this is talking about Abraham, by the way, when it says his faith is counted as righteousness. I mean, this is anyone, but they just talked about Abraham. But it can go all the way back to Abel, and we will in uh, Hebrews 11 in just a minute. But the understanding here is that those who believe in the one who justifies, those who put their faith, their trust, their hope in the one that justifies, God himself who would be seen in Jesus, when we do that, when the person who looks to God, who looks to Jesus, who believes in God, believes in Jesus and has faith and trust, trust that God is who he says he is and does what he says he does, when we trust in him, that is where righteousness is found. And in a moment, we'll see that that will change the way we live. But for now, let us just focus on the fact that as we look at Cain and Abel, the difference is clear through the New Testament. Through these two passages, through more passages that we're about to look at, Cain was evil because he didn't trust God. Abel was was righteous because he did trust God. Faith is righteousness. Unbelief is evil. We've seen that so far, and we're going to continue to see that come out. So then, we see then, indeed, so if we understand that's true, now let's move to Hebrews chapter 11, where we are told that Abel's Abel's sacrifice was indeed made from faith. Because what I just read from Romans would tell you that faith and righteousness are linked, but now we see in Hebrews chapter 11, without any question, that this is indeed why Abel was accepted by God, was in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, this is what we read, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Hebrews chapter 11, beautiful chapter. If you haven't read it in a while, you should read it again. It basically gives us an overview of the whole Old Testament and all the people that followed God in faith. I would say this might actually be the genealogy of the people of the offspring of Eve. It's the people who have faith all throughout the Old Testament and even into the New. But in the very beginning of that, we're told about Abel. And again, notice here, it says that it's through faith that he offered his sacrifice. We notice that through that, he was counted as righteous. So this is Point blank, we see this is true, that faith and righteousness are coming together here. And it was through his faith, even though he died, that he would speak. Now, how does he speak? We're still talking about him today. We're talking about faith. 
and the importance of faith in our lives. So, there's no doubt that Abel's sacrifice was made from faith, and we already saw that Cain's sacrifice was made out of an evil heart. And so let's just talk for a minute then about God and what he expects of worshipers. So we're going to look at several different uh, verses. We're going to stay in the Old Testament for these. But what we're going to see today is that God desires an obedient heart, an obedient, faithful heart, not mere acts of sacrifice. This is clear throughout the Old Testament. Proverbs 21, 27 says, The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination. How much more when he brings it with evil intent? This was Cain. It's an abomination to bring acts of worship to our God when we are in our hearts are evil and unbelieving, when we are wicked. 1 Samuel 15.22 is on the heels of King Saul when he was supposed to sacrifice or when he was supposed to uh, sacrifice and destroy a whole nation, but instead he chose to save some of the best things for himself and for the people. But in 1 Samuel 15.22, this is what Samuel says to Saul. He says, has the Lord... Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. See, so often, even in the Cain and Abel story, we can get sidetracked in trying to figure out, well, what's the right sacrifice to bring? But what we're told here is that God, what God wants as a sacrifice, and we're going to see it again in a moment, is obedience. And obedience is born out of faith. Again, a faithful heart that comes forth in obedience is what God wants. That's how we offer acceptable worship to God. Cain didn't. Abel did. And then Psalm 51, 16 through 17. This is David's psalm after he committed the atrocities of, of, of committing adultery with Bathsheba and then having her husband murdered. And Nathan calls him out. And as he confesses his sin to God, this is what David says in Psalm 51. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Even David understood at the time of his greatest sin that no sacrifice was going to be what God was going to need to truly forgive that sin. What he, what God required is a heart that is broken and humble, a heart that is faithful, that trusts in God, a heart that is broken and contrite and submitted to God. It's about David's heart, not about what sacrifice he might bring. It's not just about if I sin, I can just say, oh God, please forgive me because you will, because you're God. No, it's about having a heart to, that says, I am wicked and evil and unbelieving and I need to come back to you and I need to trust in you. So as we see throughout scripture and we see Cain and Abel specifically, what we come to understand is very clear, that God does base his acceptance of sacrifices. He bases his acceptance of worship on the righteousness of the worshiper, which is the faith that they have in their heart that will lead to obedience. And so as we talk about Cain and Abel, let's not get caught up in all the little details of trying to figure out why everything happened, but we can look clearly as we see at scripture of what was really going on here. And there was a problem with Cain's heart. And Abel's heart was righteous and faithful. And so, the question I ask us all today is how will we live? Will we live a life like Cain, the offspring of the serpent? Or will we live a life like Abel, the offspring of Eve? The offspring of faith versus the offspring of evil. How will we choose to live? 
And then in just a moment, we're going to see that the greatest thing that we need to talk about today is how are we going to submit our lives to Jesus Christ and his gospel. But as we go back to 1 John 3, I want us to think about how we are living. 1 John chapter 3, verses 7 through 15, this is what it says. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. And whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and those who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, when the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death, and whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So we start by looking at Are we living a life like Cain or Abel? Well, this is a description, again, in the midst of talking about Cain, uh, at the very beginning, it talks about the differences between the offspring of God and the offspring of the devil, the offspring of the serpent versus the offspring of Eve, the, the offspring of evil versus the offspring of faith. What does it look like? What is the difference? And 1 John 3 makes it very, very clear. We see that unbelief, A lack of faith, what it leads to is continuing in sin and a hatred of others. And if we continue in sin, we make a practice of sinning. Our life is marked by sin, which means it's marked by unbelief. Let's not forget that connection. If we have a life that is marked by unbelief, it's going to be a life that is marked by sin, by a practice, by a pattern of sin that that is not shaken. When we are living our own lives and not believing in Christ and instead believing in our own ways, when we're living that way, we are of the devil. That's what it says in 1 John 3. The the humans are of the devil, the ones who will be living that way, who continue in sin, or those who continue to hate their brother, to look out for their own interest and no one else's. That is a sign of evil, a sign of unbelief. And so we see here very clearly that hating others and living a life of sin is the way that is evident that someone is of the seed of the serpent and not the seed of Eve, the one who is faithful. It's very clear that there's evidence that is there. So then we look at faith then. What is faith? If unbelief is the practice of sinning and hatred of others, and that, by the way, brings condemnation, There's no eternal life for that person. It brings condemnation. Living the life of the devil, living a life of sin, living a life of unbelief brings condemnation. But faith brings eternal life. And let's move over and look to Hebrews chapter 11 again. Hebrews chapter 11 in greater context. We've already looked at Abel, but let's look at the whole passage in in chapters 1, sorry, verses 1 through 6. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. For by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. 
By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he might not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. What is faith? Faith is an active trust in God's character and his works. And as we have an active trust in God's character, who he is, and his works, what he does, when we trust in him for who he is and what he does, that is how we please God. Notice the title of today's sermon is How to Please God. Cain and Abel came. One pleased God, one didn't. But it wasn't about the things they brought. It was about their heart. If we want to be people who truly please God, Hebrews 11 makes it very clear. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. We believe that he is who he says he is and that he rewards those who seek him. He does what he says he does. We trust in who he is. We trust in what he's done. That is the whole of faith. Quick illustration here, as I want to try us to, to make us, to, to just get us to think about this. If we truly trust in God, like sin won't be a thing we're even attracted to because we know he knows best. The serpent doesn't know best. God knows best. And so when we trust in God, then we won't settle for cheap imitations. Here's just a simple illustration. Some of you, uh, and I've yelled at some of you for this, but I'm not really thinking of anybody in particular here. But listen, so there are times where uh, we'll have an event at the church or have people over to our home. Now, one thing you need to understand is that if there's an event or there's something going on at my home, my wife is going to make food. Uh, she, that's what she does. She's a food maker, and you can tell. All right, but if you're coming to my house, you better be ready to eat. If you're coming to the church for an event, you better be ready to eat. Now, if you trust that why you coming to my house, if you trust that I have your best interest at heart and my wife has your best interest at heart, and that you're coming at dinner time, you're going to have a good dinner, you're going to show up hungry because you know that what's coming is best. However, if you don't, and this has happened a few times, and people show up and we say, here's all the food we prepared for you, and they say, well, I already ate. Ooh, oof. I just went to McDonald's. You know, like, what? What? You just went to McDonald's? You could have had this great food, and yet you went to McDonald's before you got here? Now, my point is simple. If you truly trusted that what you were going to have when you got here was going to fulfill you, it was going to give you everything you've ever wanted is in a meal. If you really believe that about my wife and I, let's say, or even insert anybody else who's a really good cook, a good chef, whatever, but if you then say, you know what, I know I'm going to this event, but I'm just not quite sure the food's going to be good enough, so I'm going to just stop and get a burger and fries on my way. Not only is that hurting you, but it's also hurting your host. It's also hurting your host because you're not, you don't trust me. You don't trust that I'm going to be able to feed you when you come. And so you need to fill yourself before you come. I know that might be silly to some of you, but for me, this is what my mind works sometimes. It's God, right? It's God says, I have everything for you. I have the complete banquet, everything you would ever want. It's the perfect meal. And I'm telling you, I'm telling you, I am the best cook ever, and I am going to give you the very best food. Because who I am and what I do is food. And you are going to be fed so well. You're going to be given everything you could ever imagine. But then, 
in our lives we say, yeah, God, I know you say that, but I'm not really sure I believe that that's really true. So I'm going to eat some McDonald's. I'm going to sin. I'm going to dabble in some sin. I'm going to do some things that I want to do that make me feel good at the moment because I don't truly believe that what you have for me is so much better than what I can get here. This is the nature of humans in one sense, to look at the Look at the physical and say, this is what I want right now, instead of looking to the eternal and looking to God and saying, I trust you, I believe in you, I know who you are, God, and I know what you do, and therefore I'm going to live for you, and I'm not going to give in to all this artificial, terrible sin. I'm not going to do it because I'm looking to you. I think a lot of times we try to break our our, our pull to sin by simply saying, I'm going to stop, instead of turning and saying, the dinner is here. Instead of so many times we might say, well, I don't want to go to McDonald's anymore, so I'm just going to, you know, starve myself. That's not helpful. Instead, I don't want to go to McDonald's anymore, so I'm going to trust that I have a, I have a feast coming, and I'm going to go and I'm going to enjoy it with my God. I have nothing against McDonald's, by the way. just want to make that clear. <laughs> However, I hope the point is made. The idea here is that our faith in God, if we truly trust God, it will change how we live. We'll have an active trust in him. We'll believe in who he is and we'll believe in what he does so much that it'll change everything we do and how we live. And that's where I'm going to go next. Our faith, or our love, as we're going to see these two things are actually coinciding, our faith and our love will be seen in our actions. When we talk about faith, we're not just talking about an intellectual understanding of who God is. We're not even just talking about an emotional understanding of who God is. Those things are important and they play into our knowledge of God. But this is not just about what we think and what we feel, but it's about what we do. Faith comes out in how we act. That's why faith and righteousness can be connected. That's why evil and unbelief can be connected. Because that unbelief will result in action. Cain's unbelief in God resulted in murder and lying. Abel's understanding of God and his faith in God came to being accepted. And so, our faith and our love will be seen in our actions. James 2, 14 through 17. I'm not going to unpack this in detail. We did a whole series in James. You can go back and find that. But James 2, 14 through 17. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food... And one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled. Without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. This indeed has always been a tension in Christianity. What is, how do faith and works play together well? The truth is, in scripture, we see that they do play together. That faith is very clear. Faith is when we trust in God, and a trust in God will result in change in how we live. They are linked together. There is no idea that you can have a faith without working it out or having works that matter without having real faith. Faith and works go together, and there shouldn't be a problem with that. We, are, we have tension because we think that um, faith is just an intellectual belief or just a feeling we have towards God, but if we truly understand faith for what it is, that it is believing in God, and that belief results in how we respond and how we act... It allows us to look to his banquet and not settle for the things of this world. When we look at it that way, we can see that faith and works make sense. They will go together. 1 John 3, as we've been looking at all throughout this time about Cain, also makes this connection in 1 John three sixteen through 18. 
By this we know love, that he laid his life down for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Now, obviously, this passage doesn't specifically say faith, but do you see the connections between James and 1 John here? It's almost the same verses, only one says love and one says faith. But if you remember back to the other verses in 1 John 3, we see that love and faith are very connected. As our love will be seen in our actions, our faith will be seen in our actions, they go together. And so again, as we believe in Jesus and as we love others, this is how we show our faith. Our faith will be seen. It's not just about what we say. So it's not just about what we think. It's not just about what we feel. It's not just about what we say. But ultimately, it comes down to how it works itself out in our lives. Our trust in God will change the way we live. Our trust in God will change the way we love. That's the truth of Scripture. You see, Jesus is the opposite of Cain, if we think about it. Jesus is the very opposite of Cain. We saw that in verse 18, or I'm sorry, verse 16 of 1 John 3. It says, By this we know love, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us, that we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Whereas Cain took life, Jesus gave his life to give life. Cain, out of anger, murdered his brother. Jesus, out of faith and love, saves us. We see that Jesus is the opposite of Cain, and he showed his love. He showed his faithfulness by giving his very life for us. And what we're told is we should be willing to do the same. Because again, to love and have faith is to live an honoring life to God. But I do not want to finish our time this morning together without us remembering where all of this comes from. Because right now we could leave and say, okay, I just need to have more faith, obey more, do better. That's not the point. The point is that God wants your heart. God wants you to believe in him more than anything. And he wants you to believe in him and know him so much that he did give his own son. He gave Jesus to die for us. And therefore, any faith we have is only as a result of Jesus. And so let's look, as we finish our time together, but let's look at our last point and the implications of our outline. Jesus is the object and the source of our faith. We've been in First John, we've been in Hebrews, we're going to stay there. First John three nineteen through 24. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive for him because he, we keep the commandments and do what pleases him. Notice that do what pleases him thing. What is that? Remember, faith. And this is the commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit who he has given to us. These verses are beautiful. It says, listen, our heart is what God wants, and God is the one who will change our hearts. He is the one that will do that. And he'll do that as we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. They go together. The idea is we have faith in him. And it says, what is the commandment that we need to follow? Verse 23. 
See, sometimes we take these verses and we just say, okay, whoever believes in, G- in Jesus will also obey God's commandments. And we immediately want to jump to like the ten, you know, the ten Commandments. Am I, well, I have to obey all ten now that I'm a, a Christian. No, actually, there's two here that are given us. It says, this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of the Son of God, that we have faith. We believe in the Son of Jesus Christ and love one another. We have action that follows. Faith in Jesus will result in a change in our life. And that Jesus does that. He changes our heart. God changes our heart so that we can be people of faith who trust and obey him. It's only through Jesus that this can be true. And let's look at uh, one final passage, a couple passages together here, but in Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to start with just reading verses 1 through 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, by the way, that's everybody in chapter 11, all the people who showed faith throughout history. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. The truth of Hebrews chapter 12 is right here. In order to lay aside every weight and to lay aside the sin that so easily entangles us, what do we need to do as we run the race of life? We need to look to Jesus. If we look to Jesus and we trust in Jesus and what he's done and who he is, when we trust in him, then all the things on the side of the road as we're running the race, we're not going to notice. The sin and the weights that so easy can entangle us and slow us down in life, Those things want us so badly. The serpent wants to deceive us to go his way. But instead, we stay on the race. We look at Jesus. We trust in Jesus. We know who he is. We know what he's done. And we go forward. We look to Jesus because he is the author and finisher. He is the founder and perfecter of our faith. Our faith has everything and only to do with him. That we come to Jesus. That we know what Jesus has done. The fact that he came, God himself left his throne, came to become a human, born in a lowly manger, lived a life of perfection, of pleasing God, and showing that he was indeed the the perfect sacrifice that could be given for sin. He lived that life. He taught us what it meant to live our lives for him, to trust in him, and to love God and love others. And he taught that, and then he died on the cross. As we're just read in Hebrews chapter 12, Sinners uh, took hostility. They said, we don't like this. We don't like this Messiah. We don't like this man. He's claiming to be God. He's a sinner. And so therefore they put him on the cross and crucify him, even though he was perfect and did not deserve it. He was innocent. Abel was innocent. Jesus was even more innocent. And so we see even Cain and Abel is pointing us now directly from Cain and Abel. Cain killed Abel. Sinners killed Jesus. We're seeing the connection throughout the pages of Scripture. And what we know is that Jesus died so that he could forgive our sins for anyone who would come to him in faith to trust that Jesus is who he says he is and he did what he says he did, which is that he died for us so that we come to him and ask for forgiveness and we, we look to him for our salvation from the punishment of sin, which is the rule of sin and death forever. Then he rose again three days later. So that our faith is not misplaced, but our faith is put in the only God who is alive, has defeated sin and death, and we have hope beyond all hope. That's where we can have faith.
And he says, all that I ask is you come to me in faith, that you trust me. You trust that I am who I say I am. You trust that I've done what you, that I've, what I've done and that that has paid the way for you to live a life of faith and have eternal life forever with me. That's what Jesus says. And so why wouldn't we look to him on the race of life? He is the one who saves us. He is the only one who brings us faith. He is the author. He is the one who started our faith. He is the one that's going to finish our faith. Our faith is all around. He is the center of our faith. Abel had faith, but Jesus is the ultimate source of our faith. Because Jesus obeyed, took our shame, and faithfully gave a sacrifice for us, a better sacrifice than anyone, whether Cain or Abel, could give, the perfect sacrifice of himself. That is the truth that we know through Scripture. And then I want us to move to Hebrews 12, 22 through 24 as we close. Hebrews 12, 22 through 24. But, have you, but you have come to Mount Zion, this is talking to believers, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels in, in festal gathering, <clears throat> and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirit of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. We come around full circle. Whereas Abel's blood, remember, Abel's blood was shed, an innocent man's blood was shed, and the shedding of his blood actually resulted in a curse to Cain. But the shedding of Jesus' blood, another innocent man, brings a new covenant that gives us eternal life. And so in just a moment, Pastor Justin's going to come up and he's going to lead us in communion this morning. And this is the reason we waited. Because as we come to communion, we remember the new covenant that was given to us through Jesus by his blood. So as we remember that through communion today, we remember that whereas Abel's blood brought a curse to Cain, Jesus' blood brings us new life. And we can rejoice in that. We can have faith in that. We can trust in God with all of our hearts. And that leads us into the life that we should live. And so with that, I'm just going to say a prayer as we close this time and lead in. And as I said, Pastor Justin will come and lead us through communion. Lord, thank you for bringing us here this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. We pray that as we think about how we can please you, we know that there's only one way, and that's to truly trust in you, to trust in who you are and what you've done. God, help us to do that daily. But for anyone here who hasn't given their life to Jesus, who hasn't come to you and trusted you with their life, hasn't placed faith in you, but is trusting in this world or trusting in themselves, would you allow them to see their need for a Savior, see their need to come to you and have faith in you, even as we take communion together, even as we remember the death that you died for us, the blood that you shed and the body you broke. Help us come together this morning to remember that sacrifice and to walk in faith together. And I pray all this in Jesus' name.